This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. The legal information presented on In Legal Terms is meant to provide general information about the topics discussed and is not necessarily the opinion of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. The information conveyed does not create any type of attorney-client relationship. Please consult an attorney provider before making any decisions about your specific legal questions. Welcome to In Legal Terms from MPB Think Radio. It's the show about you and your rights. I'm Liz Gill, and I'm with Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. Hello, Professor Gershon. Good morning, Liz. How are you? I'm doing excellent, excellent, even in this heat. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, and, uh, this is, uh, well, it's summer. It's supposed to be hot, and, uh, and I'm really excited about the show we have today. Uh, I was on the board of uh, a children's home in Florida when I lived there that dealt with uh, juveniles who were about to get in trouble. They were having problems and, and they uh, had some mental health issues. They got them into a group home to help them. Those children went on to, to be uh, much more productive, you know, stay out of the, the criminal justice system. And then about two years into that, the state of Florida stopped funding that program because they wanted to put the money into the other side, the children who had already got in, gotten into trouble, uh, and, and those children ended up in, in prison. So I'm really excited to have uh, Claiborne Fer- Ferguson on today. Uh, and Attorney Ferguson, it's, it's, it's great to have this issue and this topic. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and, and your area of practice? Sure, I appreciate it. I've been practicing criminal defense for the last 20 years. I am board certified as a criminal trial specialist by the National Board of Trial Advocacy, and I have a, a background in science of BS from Rhodes College here in Memphis in biology. I specialize in dealing with cases that have some aspect of uh, medical or biological uh, issues involved in them, uh, or testing in general, whether it be uh, um, lie detector tests, DNA, fingerprints, those kind of issues. Uh, it's kind of a passion of mine to keep that that science alive within the criminal justice system. Uh, the criminal justice system is probably about 20 years behind in modern scientific or medical theory or thought so it's it's kind of a it's kind of a difficult area to be in when you're dealing with uh, many of the people that are in it have little to no scientific background and it seems that I'll, I'll, you help families uh, who have children for example on on the autism spectrum the autism spectrum disorder asd could you what does that mean exactly well, uh, what we like to say in criminal defense is that when we're talking about a, a disease or a spectrum where you're looking at about one in 50 uh, on, a, on a kind of a, um, an average scale, it may be one in 100, maybe, maybe lower than one in 50, that we're probably coming into contact uh, between the several hundred clients that we have a year, we're probably coming into contact with 15 to 25 people who are fully on the autism spectrum disorder scale. Um, obviously, that autism, sometimes you'll hear people talk about Asperger's syndrome, which is kind of more of a, maybe a more, um, I don't want to use the word benign um, uh, form of Asperger's or autism. But what we're dealing with are people who have difficulties in their social interaction and communication skills. 
Um, that's probably the number one uh, within the DSM, the, uh, the, the manual for diagnosing mental um, issues. That's probably one of the number one um, diagnostic tools is trying to figure out where a person is on the social interactive and communication. Um, obviously, there's other things you hear, uh, rhythmic behavior, and if you listen to radio and the public, um, the, the uh, apps that are there for autism, they'll talk about uh, children under the age of one or right at one that don't cry or don't coo as something that you should uh, probably note to your doctor as an early sign of possible um, either autism or autism spectrum disorder, because again, that goes back to that child's ability to interact with the environment appropriately and also communicate with the parent. Uh, on our front, for us, we deal with, and I, I, I call everyone probably under the age of 25, probably as a child, um, there's a push within the criminal justice system to expand the jurisdiction of juvenile, juvenile court systems up to 25 because of the modern um, understanding of the brain development and when the brain is actually completely developed where you'd actually you would start to consider somebody to be responsible for their own actions not to say that under 25 you're not responsible but there there may be biological reasons for for that behavior uh, so we deal with uh, many people under the age of 25 all the way down into our juvenile court system um, who are either diagnosed with autism or because of the interactions and our inability to truly interact or communicate with them we have to have to really be careful and start considering whether or not we need to have them um, looked at for the possible diagnosis of autism. Uh, within the criminal justice system, if that client cannot interact with us on an appropriate basis or communicate with us, that uh, obviously creates huge ethical problems for the attorney. And one of the things that with autistic clients is that they have a tendency to appeal to um, the, the, the well, let me put it this way: If you tell them to go do something, they may go do it because they're they're appealing to the authority of the attorney. But they're really you have to ask yourself: Are they making a voluntary decision, or is that based on their um, diagnosis of aut autistic that they will just simply do what anyone tells them to do that they perceive in a, in a position of power? Um, and that's very dangerous for us ethically and also to make sure the client receives um, the appropriate criminal justice. This morning, we are talking about the legal tools for parents of children on the autism spectrum or mental health disorders. Our guest is attorney Claiborne Ferguson. Well, Liz, this is really so so fascinating. And I know we've done uh, several shows on special needs planning from the estate planning side, but we've never really talked about uh, people with special needs, particularly the autism spectrum disorder or other mental disorders uh, who are juveniles in the criminal justice system. So, uh, Mr. Ferguson, can you tell us how, how are needs of uh, children with uh, autism spectrum disorder different from other juvenile defendants that you've dealt with? Right. So when the juvenile is on the autism spectrum disorder, um, you will find a lot of times that when you're having conversations with them about whether or not they even um, are even guilty of the crime charged, uh, and, and, and that is, you know, that, that's kind of the cornerstone of what I do is having a discussion with somebody and asking them, well, what happened and why did you do it and what was the intent behind that in order to, to determine whether or not there are defenses to it. 
uh, autistic children will simply say, uh, they, they, won't, they can't have that level of communication. They'll say, I, I'm gonna do whatever you just tell me to do. You tell me what to do. Whatever you say, I'll do. And that, again, that goes back to that, that inability to communicate and that, that um, social interaction being um, either delayed or um, just being inappropriate. So when you have that, just starting off the initial representation, you have problems trying to even figure out what to do with the client. So if we see that happening within our clients, we will immediately go back to the parents. Obviously, we do this uh, early in the representation anyway, and ask them about that child's uh, behavior at school, behavior in the home. Um, a lot of parents and that end up in the criminal justice system because it, it does take in everybody. You get a lot of parents who are not necessarily um, have all the access to the resources that uh, some other parents might have. There's a, especially here in Memphis, there's a very active family group of parents who are uh, trying to get ahead and in front of this with their children with autism. But um, in, in these areas where there's a high rate of poverty and uh, lack of system medicine or medical um, intervention, you will have to have conversations with the, the parents about, even even down to saying things that I'm uh, just saying to people who aren't in the legal field, it just sounds horrible sometimes. Well, you know, was he just kind of a funny child, you know, and, and get him to say yes and then get them to explain what that means. Um, it's not the way you would be diagnosing uh, in a clinical setting, and it's not... Um, it's, it's probably not the way that most people think that you have conversations with people. But uh, again, you're just trying to find out if there's any reason to suspect that this child may have um, deficits in his mental ability in order to make reasonable, rational decisions. Uh, in case people don't understand this, when a child is taken into the criminal justice system, even under age in the juvenile system, he is my client, the parent's not my client, the child is, and so I'm ethically bound to communicate at a level with that child so that that child can make um, rational knowing decisions. Uh, the other thing that happens is if your child is incarcerated prior to adjudication in the juvenile court system, it's extremely, um, uh, it's, it's extremely bad for the child on the autism spectrum disorder. Small, uh, enclosed areas with lots of people, lots of loud noises, lights, those kind of things that are very upsetting to a child that's on the autism spectrum disorder. So we, we also, on the one hand, we need to know who has autism. On the other hand, we need to know if this creates a, a form of defense for use it to try to keep that child out of any kind, either pre-adjudication or post-adjudication, incarceration, uh, or detention in the juvenile system. We're going to continue our discussion with Claiborne Ferguson. Where can you go online or how can you get a call to information about children and youth services for mental health? I'll tell you next. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio.
Hi, I'm Dr. Susan Buttress, host of Southern Remedies Relatively Speaking, a show that explores issues that relate to you and your family, from mental health obstacles and family interactions to handling life's disruptions. Whatever it is, we're here to help. Find out what we're all about and subscribe to the podcast by using any podcast app or by downloading our MPB Public Media app. This is In Legal Terms. Now, not everyone has a chance to listen to our whole show live, so if you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show on our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. It's also available on the MPB Public Media app, as are all our local shows. I'm Liz Gill, and I'm here with Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. We want all of our listeners to know that the Mississippi Department of Mental Health has a web page that provides lots of information. Their main web address is DMH, so that's Department of Mental Health, dmh.ms.gov. And for more information about services or if you have a loved one or you need help, you can call the Mississippi Department of Mental Health Helpline. Their number is 1-877-210-8513. Staff are available to provide help around the clock. This morning, we're talking about the legal tools for parents of children on the autism spectrum or mental health disorders with our guest, Claiborne Ferguson. Right, and I'm so glad we're focusing on the criminal justice issues. You know, Claiborne, what worries me is I've seen, it seems like, more criminalization of mental health and drug addiction in in my lifetime as opposed to, to treatment. I mean, have you seen any improvement in the way states deal with children with mental illness? Uh, well, I was thinking about that the other day. We, uh, I was talking to somebody. We used to have a hospital downtown Memphis that was the only, only adult mental health uh, inpatient uh, facility in all of Shelby County, and it closed down probably 15, 20 years ago when they started to want to move people with mental illness back into the community because it was considered to be um, uh, better for them or more fair, equitable, whatever the whatever the reasoning was. Um, but as you said, what that led to was then our uh, jail system became the largest provider of mental health uh, treatment in the three-state uh, three county because, again, remember, we're taking in uh, and we're getting people in from Arkansas, Mississippi, and Tennessee uh, pretty regularly here in this uh, North Memphis, uh, excuse me, uh, North Mississippi, Shelby County, Memphis area. And so what, what happened was now all the people who had management, and what now is called case management, um, no longer had access to those resources. They came off their medication, they became uh, altered or violent or just whatever, and ended up um, in the sheriff's custody, in, in jail. And they had to learn how to take that role over and um, start to manage those cases. And our sheriffs, year after year after year, will be the first person to tell you that they don't want that job. I mean, they don't want it. They don't want to be a health care provider. They don't want to be a mental health care provider. Um, you've seen within the police forces, we're called, um, uh, I think it's CIT, crisis intervention teams, CITs. 
uh, and officers being trained as CIT officers because, again, uh, in a lot of jurisdictions, there's no real tools for those officers when it comes to increasing force when somebody is becoming violent. Um, our homeless population uh, is known to be carrying a lot of knives, and police officers know that. And we've had, uh, a few years ago, we had a rash of uh, mentally ill homeless people being, having, uh, being shot and killed by police officers who were armed with knives. Um, we obviously don't want that to be the way that we handle a mental health crisis. But um, when you take away funding for um, state-run, state-sponsored mental health treatment, and you don't have any way really to identify the people who need that treatment other than wait till they get arrested, um, there's just, there's a break in the system. We have done in Shelby County, we have what are called help courts. So we've had, for about the last 20 years, we've had a drug court. It's very effective. Uh, it's designed to try to help people bypass the legal system. And if they will be compliant with their treatment plan, they can have some fairly serious felony cases dismissed and taken off the record after about 18 months. Uh, that obviously has changed because when it first started out, the, the drug of choice was cocaine and we were able to treat those folks in about 12 months. But with the, the boom in crystal meth and heroin and then fentanyl, uh, it's now been stretched into 18 and 24 months because of the, uh, the nature of the drug and, and that addiction and the, the relapse potential. We have a mental health court now in our general sessions court that is attempting to identify as, you know, in quotes, those consumers, which mean defendants, who are taking up a lot of the space or a lot of the time within the criminal justice system because they get arrested for kind of a status crime, whether it's um, indecent exposure, which is just police talk for urinating in the alleyway because they're homeless, or just uh, um, aggressive panhandling, those kind of things. They're trying to um, divert those people from the justice system to provide them with the connections within the community to make sure that they get appropriate treatment and trying to take them out of the kind of revolving door of our justice system. Um, but, it, but it doesn't handle real severe uh, mental illness. Um, and it's definitely not set up for autism. Autism is a, is a strange, um, it's, it's, it's its own unique problem within the criminal justice system because it doesn't rise to the level of any kind of defense in the, in the sense that the person is mentally ill to the point where they don't know what they were doing or they were uh, not guilty by reason of insanity, uh, it comes back down to a level of maybe those people not understanding necessarily the full scope of the criminality of what they did or why they shouldn't have been downloading pictures of young girls that were underage, um, uh, very common within the um, ASD spectrum to be seeing that happen. Um, and so it's, there, there are, we, we, we see the problems, we try to address those problems, but to be, to be honest, uh, court and prosecutors are not the best place to be um, trying to intervene or inje inject yourself into those, uh, those problems. Um, the problem is we just have no other pipeline to get a hold of those people at this point. Well, you mentioned prosecutors, and, and I, it, yeah, you have taken the time to, to learn about uh, these mental illnesses and ASD uh, as a defense attorney. 
do you find that the, the prosecutors you deal with are trained to recognize mental health illness, mental illness issues in juveniles? Most of our juveniles will be evaluated by a mental health professional prior to any kind of adjudication, just because that's one of uh, one of the grounds is, is that they're n not in need of mental health treatment. Uh, again, that's kind of one of the problems is while they would not that that professional would not say that they are in need or that that they're mentally ill. Um, and you know, when you're talking about ASD, one of the things that you have to do is you have to rule out intellectual disability because this, what used to be called mental retardation, now intellectually, intellectual disability can sometimes mimic or mirror uh, ASD. We're talking with attorney Claiborne Ferguson about the legal tools for parents of children on the autism spectrum or mental health disorders. And there's a seminar where you can learn about autism in the Justin system. We're going to tell you about it next. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Ryder Taff, Portfolio Manager at New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advisory and co-host of Money Talks. Each week, we take your personal finance questions and tell you about a money topic we hope you find helpful. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart device's podcasting platform. Listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Professor Richard Gershon is our expert host. I'm Liz Gill, and we do hope you'll subscribe to our podcast. Now, we know lots of people are podcast experts, but I'm sure there's some newbies who haven't joined the bandwagon yet. There's lots of different podcasting platforms. I happen to like Podcast Addict, there's dozens of ones for Android phones, iTunes, uh, Apple phone people. People, you've already got one preloaded on your uh, smart device. But if you have an Android, you pick one, you download it to your phone. You can touch a plus or something that will take you to search for a podcast. I typed in in legal terms in the search area. It brings up our show. Then I can touch the photo of our show. I can hit subscribe. And then I'm notified when any new episodes are loaded up. This morning, we're talking about legal tools for parents of children on the autism spectrum with our guest, Claiborne Ferguson. Our guest and his law firm are going to be conducting a free legal seminar called Autism in the Justice System. It's going to be August 4th at 2 p.m., but of course, due to COVID, it's going to be a webinar on Zoom. Zoom's a free software, and anyone can register Eventbrite. Uh, I'm sure you've gotten tickets for lots of things on Eventbrite, eventbrite.com. But there's also going to be a link on the Claiborne Ferguson Law Firm. That website is midsouthcriminaldefense.com. And, you know, this is, it really is such important information. I, I, have, uh, I have four children, uh, and that's hard enough being a parent 
But I can only imagine, you know, what it's like. And I'm, I, you know, am grateful that I haven't had a child in the criminal justice system. But I can only imagine what it's like when a, when a family comes to you, Claiborne, and, and, or, and your firm, and they hire you to advocate for their child, what, especially if their child has ASD. What, what special resources should they expect when they hire an attorney? Right. Well, I, I think one of the things you want to look at is, is that attorney spent time around learning about autism. Um, unlike most attorneys, I unfortunately have for the system where I've had a child that's gotten in trouble. So I know what it's like from both sides of the, uh, shall you say, the, the swinging doors in the courtroom. Um, and so one of those one of those things is when you watch your child go through a criminal justice system or a juvenile justice system um, and you look at this system that's designed as a cookie cutter system so that everyone's supposed to be treated equally because that's fair but then you have to look at the individual characteristics of that child in order to determine what's most appropriate under the circumstances um, I, if you and I, I tell all my parents of children when they come to represent me, I, and and I will, they will say things like, "Well, you wouldn't do that if that was your child." And I'm, I can look at them and go, "No, I in fact not only would I, I have, um, and I've had to make those decisions that were very hard decisions. Um, I'm here to walk with you all through this, not just give you advice, but to explain to you why that's my advice." And, and what that outcome looks like for your son or daughter five years, 10 years, 15 years down the road. Um, there's some real hard decisions that parents have to make nowadays when your child ends up in the, just, uh, in the juvenile justice system because the laws now in many states have pushed down the sex offender reporting uh, into the 14s and 15-year-old children. So a child at 14 or 15 that's in, the, that's in the juvenile justice system can still wind up on the adult sex offender registry. Um, and that's a, that's a tremendous problem because even though you can get that child off the registry in a few years, uh, nothing on the internet actually goes away. Um, and that's, that's a reoccurring problem is that as soon as something gets put in the newspaper or any kind of um, uh, social media is, is pushed out, then that fact remains forever and, and follows that child for the rest of their life. So um, look for somebody who uh, has experience and the, the patience because we are very unfortunately um, overworked, underpaid and working too fast, trying to have too many clients and dealing with people with special needs is not something that can be, can be hurried or, um, or in fact overlooked. You gotta be looking for it and you gotta be willing to put the time into to getting those results that, are, that that child deserves. Well, and you mentioned the sex offender registry and it seems to me that you know, some of the behaviors that are associated with ASD, uh, you know, repetitive behaviors, things like that. I, I, I've heard of situations where uh, autistic uh, juveniles have been arrested for stalking. Uh, and, and I always wondered how they could have the, the intent to be stalking when that's just part of who they are. You are absolutely right. And that's the conversation you have to have with a prosecutor. And you want something to back it up, whether it's a, a medical diagnosis or other uh, testing, because... Um, one of the things that we deal with on a frequent basis is, is 
especially that when the kids go off to college in that first year they're, they're at college, the parents so want them to be normal and, and whatever normal means. I don't think we anybody's normal, but uh, imagine the 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 child that's ASD that first year at 18. If they go out and they're living on their own, they end up in a relationship, haven't had a really uh, serious relationship. They're rejected, and they simply don't have the um, capacity that, uh, to understand and communicate during that breakup period. They do end up stalking. They do end up um, uh, doing some fairly severe sometimes uh, behavior that can get them into serious felony trouble. I had one just recently where he was charged with a misdemeanor stalking, and I just I looked at the complaint, and the complaint was actually probably aggravated kidnapping and aggravated burglary, uh, and he just didn't get charged with it on the front end. And I think it was probably because the the, the victim probably told the police um, what had been going on in the relationship and why she broke up with him. Um, and we, we were able to settle that very um, on very good terms for that that individual because of. Um, honesty within the uh, the people involved in it. The, the prosecutors were very receptive to why he was behaving that way, and we were able to set up uh, a safety plan that all parties felt um, protected by. But it was he was so close at 18 to be picking up some very serious felonies that would have or could have led to you know eight, 10, 12 years in jail. So. Um, but again, I agree with you. It, it was a, it was, it was this repetitive behavior and an, and an inability to fully communicate and understand what was actually going on in a breakup situation. And it was, it was just, it was obvious and, and very, uh, very clearly um, caused by his autism. We're speaking with attorney Claiborne Ferguson today about the legal tools for parents of children on the autism spectrum. What are, what are some of those? I mean, uh, if you think about uh, you as a lawyer uh, have some tools that you apply and some steps that you take in defending your clients, but are there tools for families caring with children with ASD or other mental health issues that could help them on the front end? What, 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 what kind of tools are out there? Uh, to keep their children out of trouble with the law? Right, right, mainly. That's a great question. Um, I think you just took the conversation that we as defense attorneys are having now and probably just kicked it five years down the road. I don't, I don't think we're being proactive, and that's, I, I really appreciate that question because that makes me call into question exactly what it is I'm doing. Uh, 15 years ago, 10 years ago, well, really 15, uh, within the criminal the criminal bar, the criminal attorneys, we weren't even paying attention. We weren't looking. Uh, we just still just told people what to do and, and expected everybody to be um, kind of thinking on the same terms. So I, I think where you're talking about and, and where we're moving into uh, starting to push out, and we're talking about, that's what we're talking about August 4th, is really trying to get in into the front end of it, which is uh, really coming down to keeping very um, those parental controls on computers because we find that 
Uh, one of the reoccurring problems that we're having is children with autism getting in trouble online, whether again it's um, inappropriate behavior like cyber stalking, but it's really not stalking the way that you and I would stalk if we were trying to stalk, but just again not being able to understand the cumulative uh, nature of the, the actions they're taking. Uh, or if it comes down to uh, child pornography or downloads or, or those kind of things. Um, usually not dealing with kids who are uh, kind of hands-on offending, so there's no there's no one-on-one -on -one offense a lot of times. But we're talking about the computers, we're talking about the cell phones. Um, I am finding that time and time again, when the children go that first year of college with the with the loss of the um, the protections and the stability that the family unit gives to these kids, then dropping them off into college where they have roommates, and then the stress of cranking up the academics, and then the dating and, and those, those kind of things. We're really asking our parents now to be very aware of that and maybe delay that child from moving into a, an on-campus or an off-out-of-the-house uh, or slowly. Uh, doing that, but also, again, uh, keeping up with them a little bit more. This is not a situation where you become an empty nester the, the minute your child goes off to college. Um, you're, you're still wanting, and I find my clients, um, and it may be a bit of masking, but if you if you sit and talk to them long enough and, and walk them through it, they, they do want to understand, and, and they do you know, want to not get into trouble. And so you can do some training on what the appropriate behavior is. Um, sometimes with clients, I just have to tell them, don't, don't do that again. <laughs> You're gonna make it worse. Don't do that again. If you think everything about doing that again, call me and we'll tell you, don't do it. So I, I like the question. Hopefully uh, when we get to that August 4th, we'll have some better answers for you, but that's, that's exactly where we're going with this uh, upcoming seminar um, is because there, there are tools that need to be put in place. We have a call waiting for us. Let's go to Shirley in Starkville. Shirley, thanks so much for being a part of In Legal Terms today. What's your comment or question? Well, thank you for your program. And um, I, I hope that people realize that young people who uh, have, uh, you know, uh, indicate some uh, amount of uh, uh, the autism spectrum, they grow into adults, and sometimes these adults uh, lose control, and I think uh, the, your program today proves even more of a reason that police departments need to be equipped with uh, people who can, um, you know, respond to calls about uh, people being out of control and rather than just shooting people down, as often has happened, with, especially with African Americans, that um, police departments need to be reorganized to include people who can, uh, you know, recognize those kinds of mental health issues and get help for people uh, who, you know, exhibit uh, certain uh, patterns of behavior. Thank you very much, Shirley. We appreciate uh, that comment. What can you read to get more understanding of ADHD in children? I have a book 
for you coming up next. This is In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. being a part of In Legal Terms. If you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show on our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. It's also available on the MPB Public Media app, as are all our local shows, and you can find it on a podcasting platform that you use. I'm Liz Gill, here with Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. Hey, up next at 11 a.m. is our Tuesday Southern Remedy show, Relatively Speaking, with Dr. Susan Buttress. And speaking of Dr. Susan Buttress, she has written Understanding Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. It's part of the Understanding Health and Sickness series from the University Press of Mississippi. That's available from your local bookseller. We're talking today with Claiborne Ferguson about legal tools for parents of children on the autism spectrum, and we've got just a few more minutes left for our show. Yes, listen. We've had, uh, as I'm sure the listeners could tell, we you know we are all in different places, and sometimes uh, there are disconnections. And so I, I wanted to uh, follow up with a question I was asking Claiborne before uh, we got cut off, which is, if a child with a mental health challenge commits a crime, and they end up, in, you know, they could be convicted, and if they're convicted, they either end up in some detention center, maybe even prison. Uh, can they? Do they? Are there resources once they're in detention to help them? Uh, with their mental health disorder or their ASD? I, I would bet that the prison system would tell you yes when we would tell you no. I mean, again, it just comes back down to what's the most appropriate place to be providing services to these people? I mean, there's two two things going on. One, it should have been provided before they got in trouble. And two, once they got in trouble, uh, trying to have a cookie-cutter approach to mental health within a a large population of people where you're talking about 60 to 70 percent of the people within the uh, jail population of any facility is going to have a, a, a mental diagnosis of some kind, uh, depending on what kind of severity. But uh, those kind of facilities are really, um, uh, right now especially, very understaffed and they uh, underfunded when it comes to mental health um, uh, resources. And so what you end up getting a lot of times is just the medication treatment of, here, take this pill and maybe go talk to this group of people. But as far as being able to devise an individualized plan where there's uh, oversight and follow-up, that's unlikely to ever happen, Um, especially in a state system. The states have just not... And they don't want to, and taxpayers don't want to uh, provide the appropriate funding to somebody who's, you know, now a criminal. Um, but at the same time, they don't want to see children uh, suffer needlessly from either undiagnosed or uh, untreated mental diagnoses. So, yeah, jail is, jail is the number one worst way to handle the situation. When you when you talk to parents for the first time, 
uh, about a child who's in this system. What 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 are the best outcomes you hope uh, for this this child as as they go through the the uh, criminal justice system? Well, what we like to do is try to put a plan together, especially if the parent was unaware or just didn't understand the severity of the of the problem. Uh, we try to put a plan together with local healthcare providers, whether it's um, you know psychologists, psychiatrists, along with. Uh, hooking them into the local parents groups that can provide them support because when you're dealing with a child with um, uh, autism or uh, ASD, you're talking about not only that child having difficulties through life, but the parent is also going to have uh, a unique um, set of problems that uh, you and I as parents that don't have autistic children maybe don't understand or don't fully appreciate the um, the nature of that. I mean, it's very stressful, um, and it's it's that that hyper vigilance to make sure your child doesn't get in trouble. But you, at the same time, so wanting your child to be normal that you um, might just look the other way, turn a blind eye on certain behavior that that might need to be addressed earlier on. Um, that parental resource, along with the appropriate um, mental health treatment. You take that to the prosecutor. You explain to them the situation, um, and a lot of times, you know, you got prosecutors are like, "Well, if he's not, you know, if he's not uh, mentally ill, I don't care. He's still responsible." You've got to, you've got to, you've got to train the prosecutors as to the severity of this disease or of this, uh, this um, disorder. There's a great video out there. I don't know. I, I don't have a name for it. Uh, I'll be putting it on the the webcast we do. But it's it's this great video, and it's um, stick figures. It's two triangles and a ball and a and a and a square, and they're kind of moving around in this uh, really old school animated flip form book uh, animation. But as soon as you see it, you and I would go, "Hey, look! That triangle is fighting that triangle, and." That ball is the female they're fighting over, and the, the, the square is the cage, and you, you can tell this whole story. Um, somebody with autism looks at that, and they go, well, you know, there was this ball, and there were a couple of triangles, and, and they moved around, and that was it. When they explain to you what the story was, they can't they can't relate or emote to the, uh, the situation going on. I think it's a Hyder Simmel um, video. You take that to a prosecutor and you let them look at it and, and ask them what they saw, what they saw, and they'll tell you. And you and then you go, here are the studies where the you know the doctors have shown this people with autism, and here's what they say they see. They see absolutely nothing. They have no ability. They have no ability to look at the world around them and understand how things interact with other things, with how looking at a person is looking at another person. Sometimes, depending on the the level of that autistic spectrum. Um, and if you can, if you can educate the the prosecutor into how they're different, and they simply are, they're just different. The way the mind works is different. The way they perceive reality is different, and therefore the punishment has to be different. So we try to always get them to either uh, some kind of non adjudication or some kind of deferred adjudication where they're on. Um, um, if we can get them on diversion, so that this can come off the record. Uh, keep them out of a custodial situation, keep them in the community, and and as a condition of their probation that they maintain the treatment plans that we set up. And, and you mentioned having to educate prosecutors. I imagine you have to educate judges as well because they ultimately uh, can decide the, the outcome as well. So do you find that a challenge? 
Um, so far, you know, in, in our situation, it, we're pretty lucky in the state system because you're usually only dealing with the prosecutors. Uh, the judges will either accept or reject the, the plea. Uh, where you really run into a problem is if you're doing federal court where the judges take a much greater role in the sentencing, then yes, as part of your, as part of your sentencing memos that you would submit to the federal court, uh, we would lay out all of that along with the testing. And, and nowadays what we do is in our uh, federal filing, we will link to that video and, and put as one of the exhibits the, the studies showing how children with autism can't relate to that video. And the judges will come back in and go, oh, my gosh, I watched that video. I can't. I read the study. I can't believe that. There's no way you can look at that video and not understand what's going on. And I'm like, great, Judge. I agree. And uh, Claiborne Ferguson, with you being in Memphis, uh, you're at a triangle of all sorts of states with lots of judges that would need to be familiar with all this. I'm so grateful that we've been able to talk about this topic on in legal terms today. Thank you, Attorney Claiborne Ferguson, who is with the Claiborne Ferguson Law Firm in the Memphis area. Thank you for Professor Richard. Richard Gershon, who hosts from the University of Mississippi School of Law. Full of thanks today for Java and our MPB Think Radio team. I'm Liz Gill, but we hope you'll join us next Tuesday for In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast.